I mean, maybe you want to throw, like, a Jenny Jones in there if you're being generous. Maybe a Montel. Welcome back to another episode of Replaying Favorites, the podcast where we are hopefully not using movies to psychologically torment one another. I'm Chris Kelly. I'm not sure, but I'm also Brie Callahan. <laughs> and this week, we are going to explore John Waters' 1988 classic, Hairspray. Brie, what do you know about this film? I know two things. One of them I know is correct. One of them I'm not sure about. I think Ricky Lake is in it. And I think it's set in Baltimore. Both of those things are correct. I don't want to go too much into the plot because it's interesting to have you go in blind. Uh, but as we established, this is my attempt to impart more about a queer camp sensibility in film. Not that I don't think you know what camp is. I know that you know. <laughs> oh, I didn't have anything to add. <laughs> oh, that's fine. I thought you had more of a sentence there. <laughs> I find this movie to be a lot of silly fun. Weirdly, I think that I feel about this movie in some ways how you probably feel about Better Off Dead. So it'll be interesting to see. I don't think it'll be bad for you. I feel like John Waters is a more competent filmmaker than perhaps Savage Steve Holland, the man who designed the cartoons for Press Your Luck. You know, I think by the time he gets to Hairspray, he is a more com he's because he's just been in the game for so long yeah i would say that his earlier works are absolutely as clunky as as better off dead but <laughs> we can get to those later i don't really have more to add about the like preamble here i think you don't know much about this movie but you have uh, a vague sense of what john waters is about and i have a vague sense of what ricky lake is about i'm excited to see kind of her like entry into the zeitgeist I'm coming at this from the back end, and I'm excited to get into the front end. I feel like I've made a lot of words that have double entendres that I'm not that excited about. But John Waters would be thrilled about all of it. Yeah, checks out. We'll see you after the break when we've all watched Hairspray. Bye. Welcome back to the Hairspray episode. We Woo! have watched... 1988's Hairspray, written and directed by John Waters. It is the story of Tracy Turnblad, a pleasantly plump Baltimore girl who dreams of being on the Corny Collins show and ends up getting swept into the city's fight for integration. It stars Ricky Lake, Divine, Jerry Stiller, Debbie Harry, Sonny Bono, Colleen Fitzpatrick, a.k.a. Vitamin C, Michael St. Gerard, Ruth Brown, with appearances by a very young Josh Charles, Pia Zadora, <laughs> Rick Ocasek, and John Waters himself. Oh, and Toussaint McCall as himself. This is John Waters' only PG-rated film, and... A modest success, by especially by his standards. It was made for $2.7 and had a box office of $8.3 so not bad. And 98% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. I would also say that this is certified fresh in my estimation. I really liked it. Oh, I am thrilled to hear it because this is a movie that actually does mean a little something to me because of its John Waters-ness. Sure. Walk me through the experience of watching this movie. So I definitely have a note about like a third of the way through my through my notes that says, I hope there's never any real conflict that is introduced in this movie. This is a very happy film. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then almost immediately the conflict was introduced. And then in my notes, it says, oh, never mind. This is very important conflict. And I'm 100% into it. Yeah, this is a weirdly timely choice on my part. Uh, I guess there's never a wrong time in America to discuss racism. But here we are. So before we get into the conflict, which is important, let's talk about just some of the fun, bubbly, bouncy parts of this being a really weird, but also very family-friendly John Waters movie. The opening is like a little slow. First of all, there's a very 1980s introduction to the 1960s. Like there's a whole bunch of glass block on the first house that you see. And I was like, well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, um, so everybody is in this movie and it gets a little bit for me of a slow start like there are a lot of full-on dance numbers where i would have liked 45 seconds of dancing rather than like three and a half there's definitely a couple of times where i'm like oh we just listened to the whole song there but i'm struggling to say like it's a simpler time because obviously it deals with race conflict but like the bad guys are very bad and the good guys are all great and there's at first, you think that like the conflict in the movie is going to be between Ricky Lake and her mother and father, but instead they're like immediately on board. And I loved that. Like that was one of my mm -hmm. favorite parts of that is just how much that family and the friends like coalesced around Tracy to try to like help her live her dreams. So John Waters is not a subtle filmmaker, as you <laughs> have noticed. So things like the good guys are very good and the bad guys are very bad. Like, there's not nuance to be found here, and that's fine. And I also think, to your point about the songs and stuff, because I notice, too, sometimes I'm like, when they do the Madison, they do the whole fucking Madison. They sure do. And I think some of it is just that John Waters just makes movies that he personally likes, and I think he really likes the Madison. And so he just put the whole thing in there. <laughs> like, I think it's as simple as that. Um, One of the things that I really, really enjoy. Well, first off, I had an audible gasp when I saw like teenage Josh Charles and it made me very happy because <laughs> I love him. But second, aside from him, every single one of the boys, A, looks like Tony from West Side Story, and B, is completely interchangeable. I know that she steals Amber's boyfriend, whose name is like Link or something, but he is absolutely interchangeable with all of the other boys on that set, except for Josh Charles. I would disagree with that only because the guy who plays Link is 27 years old <laughs> and the rest of them are teenagers. He is so clearly older than everyone else. But like Corny looks like him. The other boy who she initially dances with looks like him. The singer from the band that makes out with Amber later also looks like him. Like that was a type. It was just nice that they were all Tracy's type. I think you're right that the other adult men look like him, but he <laughs> is noticeably separated from the children. Yes, that's Like, true. there's a little blonde kid who clearly, ha like, his voice hasn't even changed yet. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, what is Link doing in the same room with this kid being like, I'm a high schooler? And I'm like, you are three years younger than Corny Collins, I checked. They also didn't super, like, adhere to a lot of continuity when Link just, like, jumps to his feet despite being in a wheelchair at the end and just starts dancing, even though he's, like, slight. He, he jumps out of his wheelchair a number of times for the service of the plot. But that's, like, a very John Waters thing in that the more excited he is about Tracy, the further he gets out of his wheelchair. And then <laughs> whenever there's a problem with Tracy, he jumps back in. He is, like, the applause meter from the beginning, except it's with the health of his legs. Another important note about Link's casting was that he was very clearly cast for his resemblance to Elvis Presley. Sure. Over the next two years after this movie's released, he is in four projects. He plays Elvis in three of them. If you've got it, lean into it. I don't I don't know what else to say beyond that. Yeah, look for Michael St. Gerard as Elvis in 
everything you've ever seen Elvis in. (laughs) Except for when Elvis is in it. Maybe actually that's a good time to step back and talk about like Tracy and her home life. And maybe if you want to tell me a little bit about the casting of Ricky Lake, because she wasn't this was her first film, right? Mm-hmm. So how did she like get involved? Because she's she's good. Like she's a good dancer. Yeah, there was an open casting call. John Waters wanted to find a young, unknown actress. He knew that he probably wouldn't find someone who was famous and her size. Mm. And so he just did an open call for like bigger girls. Like, And she has said in interviews that like at the time she was very unselfconscious about her size. And so mm. she thinks what won him over was that she showed up being like not at all bothered by it. And then she could dance and actually became a, I don't want to say problem throughout the production, but over the course of the production, she had to start eating a lot more than usual because she is in a lot of dance numbers and she started slimming down and they had to be like you gotta keep the weight on girl and she's like i'm dancing a lot (laughs) (laughs) then we need to do fewer takes (laughs) if everyone else could get it together so that we could do fewer takes that would be great yeah that's one of the things that i really enjoyed about the movie is just how happy she is and everyone else in her life for the most part is for her to be fat like it's fine and it's it's just lovely like i feel like we're kind of reaching that point in the culture now but it's really great Mm. to see it in 1988 reflecting back to 1960s totally i love that there are immediately two guys who both really want to like be with her she gets to pick it's not just like one like pity make out it's like no guys are attracted to her the fans love her her family supportive it's there's never a question that amber is in the wrong for her views yeah Again, one of the things that I found exciting was obviously Divine's introduction is Edna, is that she's sort of, you know, these kids are being so loud and I hate this and I'm just trying to do my ironing and it's a very over-the-top performance. And then she just flips on a dime and she jumps into like momager mode like so quickly, which I really enjoyed. But that also Divine and Jerry Stiller's characters are just 100% on board and supporting her. It's kind of interesting. I guess I would have liked to have known a little bit about what their relationship was like before she got on the show, because it seems like her hmm. mom is kind of more annoyed at her before she's famous. Yeah, it's it's a quick turn that doesn't necessarily make the most sense. But this movie isn't really interested in exploring the gray areas. Just like, oh, she's famous. Everyone's happy. Like that. And like she's a rude teenager and she's a problem. And then she's just not. I also love the set design and decoration throughout. I mean, obviously, that's another John Waters thing. Are the murals on the outside of their house ever explained? No, it's just for the joke shop. Wait, what's the joke shop? We might need to cut this okay. part out. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> I think I missed her, something big. <laughs> her uh, her father runs a joke shop. He, he talks about, like, selling fake dog do and stuff. Oh, I guess I didn't realize that they, like, lived above the shop. It's downstairs. You do see, like, Penny at one point, like, knocks on the downstairs door and is like, Mr. Turnblad, Mr. Turnblad, and then runs upstairs to go. um, But I don't think they had an interior to shoot in. So they just, like, you have to assume that the joke shop is downstairs. Okay. As a first time viewer, I did not pick that up. In my mind, Edna was this, like, aspiring artist who had, like, painted all these murals on the side of their home. (laughs) And I just found that really charming and it, like, really kind of just added to the nuance of Divine's character for me. It's entirely possible that Edna did do the murals <laughs> for her husband. Should we talk a little bit about Divine and this role and like his whole career and... Yeah, we should. So 
I've come close to tears on several previous episodes. This might be the episode where I cry. I've had to like practice saying this, but we should cover that three weeks after this movie had its premiere, Divine passed away in her sleep of a heart condition. Uh, She did not get the chance to enjoy the stardom that this would have propelled her to. John Waters has talked about how he found it particularly unfair that she did not get to enjoy the success that this brought. Like, this was their biggest film together. The two of them had been making movies together for years. It's kind of impossible to overstate how important Divine was and is to queer culture as this, like, counterculture, subversive, challenging presence. Because... I think especially at the time that this movie came out and before, being queer meant really having to lean into the respectability politics of being a model minority and being a perfect, normal gay. And Divine was doing the most with turning himself into this offensive, abrasive, out loud presence that drag today still learns from. And he was in movies. He was releasing music. He was doing live theater. He was just like this larger than life and unabashed and nonconformist, perfect creation. I could go on forever. Everyone look up as much about Divine as you can because he was phenomenal. And she, as a character, was phenomenal. I knew that he had passed away the same year that this was released. I didn't realize it was three weeks later. Like, that's just, that's pretty crushing. (laughs) I mean, that's really terrible. I also wonder how much of, obviously, like, Divine was very, like, outsized, both in terms of, like, performance, but also in terms of, like, body, like you said, like, not being Mm -hmm. that sort of model minority. And I wonder how much of Hairspray is, like, kind of that reflection of the acceptance that Tracy finds almost instantaneously in the world of her choosing. I wonder what that meant to Divine as well, like, because he had to work, like, so hard to put that all out there and to kind of, like, break all those boundaries himself. I mean, I'm sure that was in there. I know, because, of course, John Waters felt very close to and in some ways, I would imagine, protective of Divine as this public figure who didn't always get respected. And when this movie was conceived of, their plan was to have Divine play both mother and daughter. Oh, the studio actually told John Waters to shy away from that. They were like, why don't you just find some like young girl to do that part? You can have the boy lead be 27, but you can't have the girl lead be like 42. <laughs> they instead cast Divine in his male form as the yes. owner of the TV studio. And he does great. Which for a second, I didn't recognize. And I was just like, who's this guy? <laughs> I was like, what? I was like, what a jerk. I mean, that's (laughs) talent right there, is that you throw Divine into two different roles, and he just... Because he really does disappear into Edna in a wonderful way. Like, as much as Divine is too unreal to be a real woman, something about Edna is just spot on. Yeah, like, I never had to do any sort of, like distance from seeing Divine as Edna. I did have to do a little bit of distance as seeing Divine as like a racist like radio operator <laughs> like that one in boy clothes, like in a suit, like that one was a little bit harder for me. I do also want to share the beautiful detail. I think this might be in the DVD commentary. I forget where I heard it, but John Waters said somewhere that Jerry Stiller is kind of method as an actor, <laughs> which 
doesn't make sense for a movie like this, but he really wanted to build a close marital relationship with Divine and made sure to like sit together at lunch and stuff. Aww. Jerry Stiller really wanted to hang out with Divine a lot, make sure their relationship felt lived in. Yeah, I love Jerry Stiller in this role. Like, obviously, from people of our age, he's mostly known for his role on Seinfeld. And it's really great to see him doing some other stuff. And he's really loving and delightful in this movie. I mean, and then also like goes in at the end of the movie and is like shoving bugs on people, which I really enjoy. (laughs) Um, Also, a special shout out to Sonny Bono, who leans into playing a villain in a way that I didn't see coming and just goes for it. Like, it's a great role for him. I always forget that this is a movie that includes a scene of Debbie Harry and Sonny Bono like linking arms and screaming segregation forever. (laughs) I mean, for both of them, perhaps more for Debbie Harry, like, that's a pretty wild career choice. Like, (laughs) I mean... I'm sure they were confident that they had built enough public goodwill that they could play a villain and people wouldn't be like, that's really what they think. And also, it's such an outlandish movie that it's hard to... It's easier to not take it seriously because nothing in this movie is that serious, even the really heavy stuff. Can we also talk about Motormouth Maybell? Because she's great. I guess my only note there is that she does eventually, when things get serious, stop talking in rhymes, but... there was a, like a little bit more distance from her as a character because she was always speaking in verse. So it like kind of didn't make her seem like a real character. And that was kind of my only note there. But I love her. Yeah, that's Ruth Brown. She had a successful singing career before this. Weirdly, I think she's given kind of a hard task by only being given rhyming verse to speak in. And she steps up really well like she has a natural charm that makes it almost okay i think there's a performative element to the character that she speaks in verse mostly but not exclusively when she is speaking to the mostly white audience that's what i thought it was going to be i thought when we got to her record store that she wouldn't be speaking in verse and that 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 was like you know kind of a protective thing that she put on for herself like when she was in a segregated environment Mm. So that was one of the only missteps in terms of characterization that I thought was there because I would have liked the opportunity to see her more as a person because I'm more interested in her than a lot of the white characters. She does stop speaking in verse when they go and they talk to the governor. Mm-hmm. If it's something she turns on and off, then like, why is she doing it when she feels most comfortable? Like that was my that was kind of my discomfort with that element of the character. But I think that's John Waters' fault. I don't think that's like the performer's fault. At oh, all. yeah. No, that's obviously... John Waters is a white man, and he is doing his best with the racial material. He has varying levels of success. I like how a lot of this episode thus far is you essentially acting as like a Wikipedia page for me, a person who is not super familiar. Like, you could tell me probably more about Sonny Bono than I actually know. (laughs) I mean, in some ways, this is kind of what we thought the podcast was supposed to be, is that one of us knows a lot about the movie and the other doesn't. (laughs) It's just that this is the only time it's actually been the case. (laughs) (laughs) The other time I'm, I'm like choking out the name of the director because I haven't actually like done the research in advance. Finally, I guess we'd be remiss not to talk about Pia Zadora. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Why is that scene in the film? What is the value add of either A, Pia Zadora, B, that man, whoever he is, and C, that scene as a whole? A, Pia Zadora, because John Waters saw a previous film of hers and liked it. 
B, that was Rick Ocasek from The Cars. That's very funny. Yeah. And C, the scene, because I assume John Waters liked the idea of including beatniks in a movie about the 60s and just had to cram it in somewhere. (laughs) Very silly. It's a nonsense scene. It adds nothing to the plot. It adds nothing to Pia's Adora and my enjoyment of her. Rick Ocasek, I don't even think, says anything. He's just making weird noises in the corner. I can't believe this is the third time Pia Zadora <laughs> has come up on this podcast. Is like, it the third? I think so. I think you told me that Pia Zadora was like coming up in the end of one episode. And then obviously she featured heavily in uh, True Beverly Hills. Mm. And then, not heavily, but... And then has also shown up today. Again, I haven't gotten a chance to tell the audience this, but I did think that her name was P. Isadora. <laughs> It literally until this month. <laughs> so it's, it's really been a, a journey for me as well. Listen, she has not really been a part of the public consciousness for a while, so it makes a certain amount of sense that you wouldn't know that much about her. And honestly, other than these two films that I've seen her in, I don't really have a lot of context either. She's fine. It's fine. That's a weird scene, but it's fine. It's tough to tell when someone in a John Waters movie is a good or bad actor because he's not really looking for realistic acting. So people like Pia Zadora, who is sort of reviled as one of our worst actors, like gets by fine because she doesn't have to Glenn Close it through this movie. Like she's got one scene where she just has to be a lunatic. Most of her character is the wig. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of really important wigs in this film. On the subject of important wigs, I want to rewind to Debbie Harry's entrance into the movie because that first shot of her emerging in the window and squinting down at Amber (laughs) is so perfect to me. Her hair is so big. Every time I sort of forget how big her hairdo is and it's (laughs) it is as tall as if she had a second head on her head and also as wide to one side as if she had another head on the side of her. Like, it's too big. I mean, it's not even the biggest wig she winds up wearing. (laughs) That girl has a whole bomb in her wig. And then Sonny Bono has the nerve to critique Amber's hairspray usage. So that family as a whole is incredibly strange. Like, it it took me a minute to put together, like, what was going on with them. Like, John Waters is doing, like, a lot of like glamping. I don't know a better way to. (laughs) I'm I'm actually going to, I'm going to leave it in. I think there's a lot of just like glamping in this movie in terms of like filmmaking where he's like going to do it, but like it's sort of over here and a little bit fancier than you expect. Mm. And it took me a little bit to understand like what exactly was going on with Amber's home life. I understood that they were the racists, but I did not understand that they were the racists who were running the amusement park where also the show was taped and like it took me a while to like put all of the locations together and realize that everything was kind of like coalescing around this like racist radio station running a sort of racist show at a racist theme park. Yeah, it's not a tight script. For instance, Sonny Bono does give Amber flyers to hand out that are for his amusement park which I think is, you know, to plant the seed that that's what's happening. But it's not super obvious the first time. And also everything's a hair clunkier than it needs to be. Everything's a hair louder than it needs to be. So the first time you watch this movie, I think it does all kind of wash over you in just like a sea of pastels and 60s dances. Yeah, I think this would benefit for me from a second rewatch. And in fact, I almost just rewatched it 
before we taped tonight because I was like excited to watch it again, actually. Like that's how much I enjoyed the movie. Ugh. But yeah, because there's so much to look at in every scene, you're not always paying attention to the story that's going through, which is also kind of fine because John Waters is in some way also not paying attention to that story because he's also interested in what's going on. I got there in the end. Like I, I realized that we were all converging on a single point. Mm -hmm. um, it just took me a while to realize the disparate places from which we had come. <laughs> Yeah, and he does sort of force everything together at the end, too. For instance, Tracy is incarcerated, one would assume, not next door to where the show is taking place, but she gets there literally in 30 seconds. You know, it's really interesting because my, my next sort of like point of call was going to be to talk about what I think is the final character in the film, which is Baltimore. Mm. And there's this one real sense of like, extremely lived in like neighborhoods in Baltimore, including when they go like, uh, I love the scene in the alley mm. um, out the back of the studio, I think, or out the back of the dance that they go to. And it's so parochial and like so Baltimore specific, like Miss Auto Show 1963, which as a Chicagoan and like someone who has a second city culture cringe over here, like I really appreciate that level of just absolute specificity to and devotion to the smallest possible amount of like celebrity. So I don't know if you know that John Waters sets all of his films in Baltimore. I didn't know he did all of them. I knew he was from there. And I think Divine's from there too, right? Yeah. I mean, initially everything was set in Baltimore just because that's where they were and they had no budget. Right. But he has right. gone sort of like a John Hughes direction with that of just like sure. he's steeped in Baltimore. And so everything he does takes place there. But because of his his historical knowledge of the place, it does feel lived in. It feels it feels like it's happening in a real city. Yeah. And I think that that does benefit things like when Tracy and Link go to the other side of town for the first time. And it doesn't mm. feel that could be way more stereotypical than it ends up being. I think that mm -hmm. he does a solid job of being like, this is actually just like a shot of the black neighborhood because Baltimore is a super segregated city and especially at the time and so he's just like this is just like the other side of town and I love I do love that Tracy gets off the bus and is immediately like I've never been to this side of town again as a Chicagoan the city for which the term hyper segregation was created can relate <laughs> you know who we haven't actually talked about we've spent more time talking about Baltimore than we have about Penny Pingleton who is Tracy's best friend and biggest supporter I liked her Penny is great this is Penny's only film role which surprised me oh bless her she actually did like a solid job she's 17 here she's Aww. just doe-eyed and wonderful the only reason to keep that beatnik scene is for penny's delivery of i am a checkerboard chick which is so <laughs> straightforward and innocent and i'm just like oh penny bless you her level of oral fixation is also hilarious. Poor Josh Charles tries to interact with her and she's like, no, this gobstopper instead. Yeah, Penny, you missed the mark on that one. Land Josh Charles while you can. I mean, she landed seaweed. I feel like they got along really well and had a great relationship together. Don't, don't they like run away together at the end of the film? Yeah, that's true. Seaweed, solid catch. Yeah, he's super cute. and He's got a great relationship with his little sister and she like got radicalized. I'm into it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Penny has like the best possible journey in this movie where she's just like a side character and she ends up with like a hot boyfriend and a whole new political perspective. <laughs> yeah, because there's a scene where Tracy doesn't come off looking as good by comparison because like they go into that club and it's segregated. And I think Penny is like, hey, this sucks. And Tracy's like, oh, this is so unfair. Well, here's my ID. 
Like it just goes on in. <laughs> it's like Penny actually makes a stand for like the love of her life and I'm into it. Yeah, I do like that John Waters, I assume this is very knowing, throws the shade at Tracy and Link when they're making out and they're like, I wish we were black. And I can feel the eye roll that he has put in when writing that line of like, oh, white activists. <laughs> some of the writing in here, we were kind of giving John Waters some shit before, but some of the writing is really quite tight. Like there's that whole scene where they have an audition with Nadine, I think, and Tracy and also Penny. Is that when Penny auditions mm -hmm. as well? And at the end of it, the group gets together and says, okay, we're going to meet in secret, debate your personality flaws and come to a decision. Like it's well written. Like I don't, I don't think we should sell John Waters short. Yeah, there is a lot of charm here. And I do laugh out loud throughout this movie. There's just funny stuff. I like the scene when Debbie Harry is forcing Amber to dance and then she's like double time and like little vitamin <laughs> C just like double times her mashed potato. And it's so funny every time she just looks insane doing it. Yeah, it's very good. And the fact that they're like not even really paying attention to her, like they're having their own side conversation while she's like just being forced to dance in front of them. I have another line that's in my notes that says you are no longer my daughter. You are punished even after you die. And it's just so good. It's such good writing. It's really good. Also, shout out to the guy who plays Penny's dad, because when he says the word die, he both points and jumps in the air. You are punished <laughs> even after you die. He is airborne on the word die. And that is camp. I also have to presume that vitamin C was cast predominantly upon her pronunciation of the word whore early in the film. I just imagine that like John Waters gathered a bunch of blonde girls together and was like, all right, each one of you in order, say whore. <laughs> just like went down the line and picked the best one. At Tracy's audition, she says, she's a trash can and she's so <laughs> disdainful and it's it's a really good line because it's ridiculous and she delivers it perfectly. I think this movie is attempting to sell a quasi-serious story or the best version of a serious story that John Waters can deliver while having a good time doing it. It's fun. You know, here's a problem. We both like this movie. We don't have anything to disagree about. <laughs> it's actually going to be a boring episode because we're both like, hey, do you remember when that funny thing happened? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, let's get to an area where maybe we'll disagree a little bit more. Should we talk about the portrayal of race and the white savior themes throughout this movie that I had a bit more of a problem with? I think we do need to eventually get there. I mean, this movie is at its core about race relations and it's told by a white writer-director, so we just got to go there. So there is a good part of the story where Tracy and also Penny and also Link have an awakening to how fucked up it is that one Thursday a month, their black friends are allowed to come dance with them. So actually, let me ask a question. Is that on that Thursday, is it only black people that are allowed or just that black people are allowed in on that Thursday and then it's desegregated on one day a month? Yeah, my assumption is that it is still segregated, but black only. But since that one Thursday is never actually depicted in the film, it's not a million percent clear. So I think Tracy has a good and welcome awakening to the fact that and then brings her friends along with her. But there's definitely like a long vibe throughout the movie of like white savior shit. Like I'm obviously very glad to see like the white teens in this movie like get involved and then eventually bring along a lot of the adults with them to fight back against segregation. But the black characters in the film sort of wind up riding backseat until the point at which Tracy gets arrested. And then they have to like go out over their skis to like try to get this white girl out of jail, which like 
that doesn't seem like something they should have to do. That seems like maybe Link's job. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's really where it falls apart for me is when the focus becomes on getting Tracy out of jail. Because you can see early on in the movie with actions like a black girl auditioning for the main show, knowing that she's not allowed to get cast as like an increasing presence of the black community at the Corny Collins show that predates Tracy and that she is unaware of. We don't have enough black characters in this movie to see all of the action that they're taking, but I think there's a real sense that they are the motivators behind all of the action until Tracy gets jailed and then suddenly she is the focus for a reason that is never explained. Yeah, because Penny winds up, like I said, becoming radicalized when she's in a relationship with Seaweed and then they have that kind of sit-in outside the studio where they're taping. And to his credit, Corny seems like he wants to integrate the show. I do have some questions about whether or not he's approaching this at the right time. Like, he's always having these discussions, like, while the show is going on. And I'm like, (laughs) sir, like, take a meeting on a Tuesday at 10. Like, you don't have to wait until they're literally, like, all the children there and, like, everything's come to a head. Like, get yourself together. I think that Corny and Tammy have kind of an interesting role to play, which is that, like, they seem sort of openly supportive of changing up the format of the show. He's, like, already having Maybell on and, like, she's a presence on the show and, like, she is actually, like, on the show when it's whites only. So it's nice to see, like, him kind of taking that extra step. But, like, kind of in the back third when everything shifts to be about, like, Tracy's fight to, like, desegregate, you basically now have a middle-aged black lady and a young black girl abducting the governor of the state in order to, like, rescue this white girl. That just, hmm, it didn't feel that good. It's obviously always played for comedy and you never feel like they're in actual, like, danger. But, like, eh. Yeah, there are lots of realism arguments we could make. For instance, the fact that the only person incarcerated in this movie is its white lead seems incredibly unlikely. Yeah, exactly. So, like, there is kind of a magical realism quality to every John Waters film. It feels like the stakes are manageable. And once the idea that, like, desegregation is important is introduced as a theme you know that it's going to turn out well. This is a happy movie. So like, it's not going to end in like a bloodbath. I do wonder in some ways if it was intentional on John Waters' part not to portray police violence or incarceration of any of the Black cast members. Because notably, Link is the only person who is injured at the amusement park. And Tracy is the only one who is sent to jail. uh, And Penny is grounded behind bars. But he really cannily avoids putting any of his Black characters in danger around the police. And I don't know if that was intentional, but it might possibly be something that he was cognizant of as like, oh, if we're going to keep this movie happy, then we should steer well clear of that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think the only place where you really see a lot of Black people incarcerated is in like the special ed program, which the movie does deliberately say is like, we intentionally put the Black kids here in order to like fuck them up. But it's actually really nice that the movie calls it out for exactly what it is, which is just to get these kids out of the mainstream culture of the school and to like mess with their lives. I will say that like special ed class looks fun as hell. Everyone's having a great time. This is where all the time. (laughs) Yeah, this listen, 
Penny meets her boyfriend because of the special ed class. Everyone's friendly. Everyone is supporting each other. It's the best possible high school experience you could possibly have. Yeah, Tracy seems to do fine with it. Well, we don't know what her grades are after this, and she does end up in juvenile detention. She's a young white girl who can dance. She's going to be amazing. She gets a crown and a sash by the end of this, and she doesn't even have to ride in that horrible tiny car. Shut up. I love that car so much. That was one of my favorite parts (laughs) of the movie. I would ride in that car in a second. Love it. So places that are only as large as the human body trigger my claustrophobia. (laughs) Like I I can do like an elevator just fine, Mm -hmm. but I can just picture the small shape that Amber has to fold herself into to sit in that car. And I, all I could think I was like, she's so uncomfortable during this take because her knees are like at her chin and she has to smile like they're not. But see, that gets again back to the parochial thing that I appreciate as as a person who lives in a second city, which is that that's the best car they had coming out of the Baltimore auto show. I mean, everything about that final scene is like the best of what John Waters can achieve. Mm -hmm. That car is so stupid. There's a (laughs) there's a bomb in Debbie Harry's hair that goes off, of course. The wig has a hinge in it. I laugh every time Sonny Bono fully opens a door in Debbie Harry's hairdo. It's so good. (laughs) It's very funny. I have no notes about that final wig or anything that Sonny Bono does in this entire movie, I have to say. (laughs) This whole cast is kind of like, we know a lot of these people. They're all stars and they all did this insane movie. Like good on John Waters for assembling like the 1988 Avengers for this. Do you know what I do think that we've done short shrift on is that I don't think we've really talked enough about Ricky Lake and sort of what she went to go on to do and also like how important this film was in sort of launching her career. Oh, yeah. This is the genesis of Ricky Lake. She was pulled out of, I guess, obscurity to become Ricky Lake, who is ubiquitous pop culture icon. Does she go right on to have the show? Like, well, clearly not. She must have had it in the 90s, right? So after this, Ricky Lake is also in Serial Mom, another John Waters film. Then she has her talk show, which is a big fucking deal. And then she was on the second season of The Masked Singer, I want to (laughs) say. Nothing happened between those two things. (laughs) I feel like this content was not for you, but she also had a documentary where she like gave birth in a bathtub. Oh, good for her. Let's talk about camp. The whole point of assigning this movie to you was to give you a sense of camp. And I will say... In some ways, under the traditional definition of camp, you can't knowingly make camp. It has to be a striving for which you fail. Surely we have, like, as a culture, made an exception for John Waters. I Well, John Waters works, A, because, yeah, he's so over the top, but B, because there's an element of earnest failure even to his trying. Like, he is not Steven Spielberg, uh, he's <laughs> he's not the best screenwriter or best director in the whole world. And so the fact that his movies are a little shaggy around the edges kind of help to make them campy. It's funny that you say the word shaggy because like, I would say that like shag rug is sort of the real aesthetic of this movie, like kind of all over. There's this whole like genre of movies that like try to make things campy because they just are trying to like make them a little queer mm-hmm. and like it just doesn't work. But there's such a level of genuineness and lived inness in this movie that makes it so homey. It just feels like a cozy robe that you're putting on. That's campy and I don't I don't know how I don't know how those two things really intersect, but they definitely do. I feel like I'm being shown 
a photo album or something by John Waters. Like, this really is just mm-hmm. the shit that he happens to like a lot. And know a lot about, right? Because, like, this is, would have been his formative years as well. Yeah. And when he was first starting to make movies with Divine, he's recreating his childhood, which is, like, why it feels so homey. I think a great example of that, actually, is the fact that when he has a Toussaint McCall song play, he brings Toussaint McCall in, who was maybe in his late 20s when he recorded it and is in his early 50s in the movie. And John Waters is like, no, just play yourself. It's fine. But it's just because he loves that song so much that he's like, sure, it doesn't even matter. Sure, the lip sync is horrible. <laughs> like, it's just, it was, it was really wretched. I definitely have a note that's like, what is occurring here? I don't. And it's literally just that he's like, I love this Tucson McCall song. I wonder if he'll be in my movie. And the answer was yes. And so they just like create this weird little moment. But that's, that's camp. Yeah, I, like you can hear the crackle of the record. Mm-hmm. There's no attempt to make it seem real. It's so funny. It's like uh, camp is a little bit like pornography. I, I know it when I see it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or things like whenever someone kisses in this movie, there's such a horrible wet noise that he amps really loud. It's not just that there's sound effects. It's that it's the sound effect of like seafood being eaten. It's just grotesque. All right. Well, we have to end the podcast forever now because you <laughs> Because I can't think about someone like masticating shrimp like while we record. So goodbye. Um, thank you to the loyal subscriber who has stuck with us this far, but it's over. And I have no regrets except for this one. I can't believe that I broke it on a movie that we both liked. <laughs> yeah. How was it not I last just... week that killed it? Because that movie is good and you just don't understand. It's fine. Oh, my God. Um. <laughs> so we haven't actually talked about John Waters himself in this movie. His role is really quite disturbing. I don't like it. Like straight jackets, even when they're being administered by in a comedy, do not like. Like that's the all the scenes with him are real. I don't like them. That's interesting. I did notice that he cast himself as one of the worst people in the movie, which may have just been a kindness that he didn't want to put another actor through being like one of the worst people. So he's like, if someone's going to torture someone in the movie, I may as well step up to bat. But also kind of like the most alien as well, right? Like that guy has no, like, where does he come from? Like, what is his motivation? You know, he traps her in a room. He traps her in a room in her house though, right? Is that yes. the, is that where we're supposed to? Okay. Cause at first it seemed like she was taken to a secondary location and that made me even more uncomfortable. But like that, the thing that happens to Penny is like really quite horrible, but it all, <laughs> also when like seaweed comes to rescue her and he like, breaks into the room i was like no no get the girl out guys come up focus <laughs> yeah such... the movie's not heavy on logic i just to throw it out there we haven't talked about one of my favorite scenes which is when penny's mom goes to rescue her the first time from the other side of oh, town my and god everyone just fucks with her because she is so begging for it yeah i said my note says oh my god that entire neighborhood laughing at the freak out white woman is so 2020 <laughs> it works perfectly it could go really wrong but Mm -hmm. there is something like the fact that everyone in the neighborhood is so gleefully in on the joke and she (laughs) is so perfectly that karen i felt more satisfying in 2020 than it probably did any other time i've seen it 
what I do think is nice, like, obviously, I've kind of ragged on the movie a little bit about sort of a white savior complex and like sure. being too focused on what happens with its white protagonist versus the people who are actually in danger and are actually suffering. But I, I do think that there is like, I love Maybelle's shop, like it's super lived in. And it clearly is like a community experience. Like there's also like a group of neighbors who are all very tight knit. I don't think that you would get that. Like, I think that is a result of John Waters' experience in Baltimore and like kind of, again, that like lived in feeling that winds up being like good fun and camp because it feels authentic mm -hmm. in a way that you can't fake. Okay, maybe it's time for us to move on to the final scene of the film. I'm very glad that Tracy gets pardoned. I'm very glad that she becomes Miss Auto Show Queen 1963. And I understand that she plans to do a dance called The Bug. What, where does the dress come from? How does she change into it on her way back from Juvie? No, she doesn't arrive in that dress. She changes while she's there. One must assume that Mr. Pinky had a coronation dress ready for her just in case. With bugs on it? I guess Amber does make one other reference earlier to her having roaches in her hair. If I were Tracy, I probably wouldn't have my defining look in my most glorious moment of winning be completely referenced upon the worst thing that my antagonist has said about me. That's fair. So <laughs> another weird thing, this movie has had a couple important scenes cut from it that were filmed. Oh, okay. The one that is most relevant to this moment is that John Waters did force Ricky Lake to film a scene where a cockroach crawls into her hair. Oh, okay. I mean, that's not the worst thing John Waters has done to a performer, so it's fine. No, but Ricky Lake was not thrilled that after that he ended up cutting it. Oh, right, of course. <laughs> John Waters was fascinated with the urban legend about the girl whose hair was so big that she didn't know that there were roaches living in it and they eat into her brain or whatever. He thought it was funny. He wrote it into the movie. He forced Ricky Lake to have a bug in her hair. And then the studio was kind of like, do we need this? And he was like, I guess not. Imagine. OK, so like, let's say you're a studio exec. Imagine you get assigned the John Waters movie. You must have been so relieved, like when you saw like the first cut of this movie and you're like, oh, PG-13. Yeah, a straight PG, a straight PG. This is like the nicest thing he's ever done to a studio. Since we're talking about Ricky's dress, can we actually talk about Hefty Hideaway? Because A, I don't think we've done enough talking about Divine. And B, I really liked the Hefty Hideaway store. Again, I, I like that this movie is just extremely fat positive and is just like, you're a bigger girl. We've got a bunch of beautiful dresses that you can try on. But B, I love how much Edna is a businesswoman. She locks that deal down. It's probably my favorite scene in the whole movie because she just instantly goes into negotiation mode. She gets shit for her. She gets her daughter locked down. It's perfect. Yeah, I think that that is a wonderful character detail about Edna is that she is mm -hmm. a shrewd businesswoman. Yeah. We don't get a ton of time with her outside the home. She's mostly just watching TV or doing laundry. And so seeing her in her element of being like, very, she's very charming about it. Like as much as she is yeah. like driving a hard bargain, she just smiles and flirts. And I think that that is a credit to Divine as a performer that she's like, uh -huh. I can deliver this line in the most charming way possible, but I'm going to get what I want. And she absolutely does. Yeah. And I also love the scene where they go in and they get Divine's hair done. <gasps> like it's just a, it's a quick in and out, but it's so lovely. It's like I said, the beginning of this movie is you get the sense that there's like an antagonism between a mother and daughter who have reached that age where they don't understand each other anymore. Mm -hmm. And then by virtue of her daughter's skill and suave in this audition, they really find something that they can bond over. And 
the whole family seems closer at the end of the film. They don't even interact that much, but there's like a really nice vibe between Ricky Lake and Divine. Yeah, like you said, I think, again, because this movie is just about what John Waters likes and doesn't like, he likes a well-dressed fat woman and dislikes racism. That's all I want from life. I have no other, like, I have no other notes on life. I do think that's why this movie ends up being very satisfying is because even when like the dance sequences are very long, this movie has a very enjoyable soundtrack and it's fun to watch people having a good time dancing. Like yeah. there's a wholesome glee that is in some ways almost out of place in a John Waters movie, not the glee, but the mm -hmm. wholesomeness. It's just an engaging film. Like everyone is delightful in it and there's you know, it's got a reasonably good message if it leans a little too hard in like what white people can do in order to solve racism. But like, she also makes an effort. So like, you can't really argue with that. Like, it's a little like the movie is too focused on her, but I don't think Tracy is too focused on her. I mean, I kind of don't even think I need to ask this, but are you glad that we replayed this favorite? Yeah, I'm really glad. I, I'm glad I got to see this one. I've liked a few of the other movies that we've watched, but like, this is definitely one that I'll watch again soon. Like, I may go watch it again tonight. Ugh. I, this is, like, my first genuine success with you, so I'm pretty thrilled about it. <laughs> I mean, I've seen this movie a million times, but I just couldn't keep a smile off my face while I was watching it, so I was thrilled that you felt the same way. To give everyone a peek behind the curtain, we did have to <laughs> reschedule the recording of this movie, but you, when you texted me to tell me that, you did say, I liked this movie, and I, like jumped for joy yay oh man oh god that would have been so gutting if i hadn't liked it because like i think maybe both of us have held off on maybe recommending some of our like favorite favorite films yeah i'm glad that you were so vulnerable in like offering this film up to me i am similarly proud of myself for having liked it <laughs> and not broken your heart everyone we did it we're still friends we are let's see if we can continue that for another week brie what are we watching next week i'll put it this way I was going to recommend a movie with a little bit of sardonic distance, but that I think you will love. But based on our conversation today and how we got to a place of loving that warm, fuzzy openness feeling, I'm changing my mind on the fly. Are you excited as I am? Yes. I don't know why you'd be as excited. This will be edited later. I'm going to recommend The Big Sick. Oh, that is an interesting one. I have heard of it. I've thought about watching it, just never did. I'm down. It is written by Emily Gordon and Kamel Nanjiani. Kamel also stars in it, uh, though Emily does not. It's about their actual, like, real-life romance and getting together and about when she got um, pretty big sick. It's a pretty great movie. It also ticks the sincerity buttons in a way that... I, what I kind of like is that so far we've sort of paired our movies a little bit together. Like, you punished me with cats. I punished you with... <laughs> <laughs> with um, Better Off Dead. But I feel like kind of our movies have been a little bit of a piece. And so I'm going to pair this very funny but very sincere movie um, against your very funny but very sincere movie. Great. I look forward to it. Okay. Well, I guess all we have to say is that this is a podcast, so please make sure to rate, listen, and subscribe and all that podcast stuff that everyone always asks you to do. Um, we are also on Instagram at Replaying Favorites. We are on Twitter at Replaying Faves. And Chris, anything you want to say before we sign off for this week? Can't think of a thing. I'm thrilled that you loved the movie. Oh, I'm thrilled I love it too. We finally got along. It's great. <laughs> I like the idea that we've been 
combative all this time. I swear we're friends, everyone. I haven't listened to the edit of the Better Off Dead episode yet, so we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I'm going to guess I don't come off great in that one. Anyway, goodbye, everybody. Bye. We'll just cut that thought out because it, it went nowhere. It got off the turnpike and then immediately drove into a ditch.